Well, good evening. I'm Brandon Mercer. And I'm Joshua Stein. Today is Thursday, January 28th, 2016, and this is episode 11 of Garbage. All right, guys. So we have a lot of stuff to talk about this week. Um, it's going to be a fun week, and it's going to be a controversial week. Um, uh, but I, I just want to start by thanking everyone who's listening um, and people who have taken the time to uh, email us and uh, get in touch with us and give us your feedback. Um, just wanted to really express that that means a lot to us, and uh, we're really excited to, um, you know, to kind of respond to some of that feedback and respond to some of the input. Um, mostly, I think we've had really positive feedback. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we just incorporated some of the things that people have suggested, and hopefully the show is reflecting that. Um, but I wanted to give you a quick shout out to say thank you. Yeah, and uh, even if you don't have any suggestions for us, um, just letting us know that uh, someone other than Googlebot is downloading our show is, is nice to know. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so this week in OpenBSD, um, we have some malloc changes. There were some LLVM updates. Um, and what's this I hear about uh, dropping VAX? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe. And also, in addition to the OpenBSD news this week, we've got an interview with uh, you, JCS. And uh, we've also got me opening my mouth and inserting my foot. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, where should we get started? Um, let's talk a little bit about the um, the uh, Malik change. As it would happen, um, Firefox was slow, and this is something we've talked about on the show. These browsers are having issues, mm-hmm. and um, MPI started to investigate um, the slowness in Firefox, and um, he kind of came onto a little bit of a roadblock. And Mark Kettenis picked it up, and he discovered that um, what was happening is. Malik was being called from multiple threads from Firefox. Um, and Malik, our Malik in OpenBSD specifically makes a couple system calls to do some randomization. Is that for um, ASLR? I believe so. Yeah, I think so too. Um, anyway, what wound up happening was um, when, when Malik was running through those syscalls and doing that stuff to get memory and uh, do the layout, uh, randomly, um, the other threads that were calling into Malik would uh, have to wait for several CPU cycles, and um, so the other threads that were calling Malik had to wait for a very long time. Um, so what Ma- Ma- what Mark kind of discovered was is that um, if he replaced the spin lock that was in there with a proper mutex, um, things worked much much better. And so um, you know he said. This is one of many improvements that we can make to Malik and uh, still kind of preserve our strong randomization features. But um, he also made a change to something else that improved Firefox as well. It was a, a Zenakara update. Yeah, that uh, increased a uh, socket buffer size. Mm-hmm. Um, I, From what I read, it's like been cranked on other operating systems, but not uh, ours. I don't know why the, the library itself didn't have that crank in it, but... yeah. Well, anyway, the good news is, is if you're using Firefox now in OpenBSD, um, you'll get the uh, huge speed improvements um, overall, and uh, it affects Chrome as well. Anything that's uh, basically has multiple threads hitting our malloc to get memory. Yeah, I haven't seen any uh, feedback, positive or otherwise, about um, 
that change in any other software. So I don't know if anyone else sees anything that would use malloc a lot. I'm trying to think of what might, like a database server or something like that. Yeah, um, I can't imagine. Actually, I don't know. This, this is not related. I later found out. But my Go applications that I was running on the day that I started testing this malloc change went from like 50-some-odd seconds of processing down to like 30-some-odd seconds. Wow. And I just thought, I assumed it was the malloc change, but uh, Matthew Demsky sent me an email and said, I don't think that's the reason for the speed-up because uh, Go only uses malloc and Seago. And, and that wasn't the case. I wasn't using Seago in my stuff. So um, it, it likely was something unrelated. Hmm. But uh, a, a win is a win, right? So your code's running faster now? Yeah, for, for whatever reason, to recompile <laughs> and it works. So Yeah. All uh, right. Uh, what else we got here? Yeah. Um, so I was kind of following along the, um, the ports mailing list, and um, there's some LLVM updates. And uh, these are, yeah, obviously there's tons of action happening on ports and there's good things happening, but uh, the significance of the LLVM stuff is that um, you'll remember several episodes prior I was talking about my video card um, needing some Zenicara updates and those Zenicara updates being contingent on um, a newer version of uh, LLVM and CLang. And the version of LLVM that we have in ports now is uh, 3.5, I believe. And it's been having things backported to it and backported to it and backported to it. And it's just a mishmash. It's not 3.5. It's not 3.6. It's some crazy thing in between, which makes, um, you know, the things that depend on it really hard to maintain. And uh, anyway, someone set in uh, an update and um, they were able to kind of get some direction from the ports team. And uh, JSG, he's one of the guys who works on Zenokara. Um, he commented that it was able, he was able to use the updated LLVM to build Mesa. So that was awesome. Uh, really exciting kind of news, um, on, on a lot of fronts there. So there's a lot of new software that requires, um, a more recent LLVM. And so this is going to pave the way for a lot of our ports and other things. Yeah, that's, uh, that's pretty exciting. Yeah. So now you were uh, you were commenting about uh, the possible dropping of Vax, huh? Yeah, there seemed to be some uh, consternation on the MISC list that um, Vax is being dropped, and so people were asking what's going on with that because the snapshots and the packages for Vax have not been updated in uh, quite a while. So they were wondering if um, if Vax is getting dropped, and so other people were kind of chiming in saying that. The hardware is just really old. It's hard to find replacements for those for that hardware. The um, code itself doesn't like uh, it doesn't either build or it's not stable anymore. So it's hard to um, do like a full package build on Vax to get out all those snapshot packages. As far as I know, the only official word is that we're no longer building um, snapshots on Vax. Yeah. Um, I don't know that it's officially being dropped or not, but there's a few platforms that we have that um, are not stable enough to build um, snapshots, and so we are just not uh, doing that anymore. Yeah, for sure, which is kind of a bummer. Um, some of that stuff is neat, um, and some of that stuff is beneficial to the project. Mm -hmm. um, and um, so anyway, there's a lot of uh, <laughs> there's a lot of deliberation that goes into deciding 
whether it's useful or worth the amount of work and that kind of stuff. So hopefully uh, we can find some hardware and hopefully it continues to provide value, but uh, there might be a certain time when we just have to uh, to call it quits for that. Yeah, um, I think this was kind of one of the things that um, Miode was uh, upset about and kind of wanting to leave the project because the older platforms that he works on um, nobody else is really using them. Um, so it's kind of like, what's the point? Yeah. But, you know, I can see it from both sides. Like if it's something that you enjoy doing and you want to put in the time to make it build and add, you know, support for random hardware that you find or whatever, then go for it. But on the other hand, it's like, I know that in, at least in, op in the OpenBSD project, we've run into situations where we had to kind of cater to the lowest common denominator. Mm-hmm. There was a discussion a long time ago about switching the, I think it was like the the sets to using bzip or something like that, mm -hmm. some kind of alternate compression other than gzip, um, and we couldn't do it because it required uh, too much memory to do that on some of the really slow platforms. Right. So, it's kind of whether we want to be held back by those older things. Yeah, and and there's also stuff in the uh, in the password hashing. Yeah, the number of rounds I think that is used um, has to be practical. You know, you can't choose a thousand rounds because it will take forever right. to hash the password. And so on slower hardware, it has to make some determinations to use less rounds or fewer rounds than it does on some modern hardware where you have a bunch of horsepower to uh, to chew through. Yeah, and so I guess this kind of leads into um, another unrelated story, but kind of the Dart uh, software or language, I guess. Mm -hmm. There was an issue on GitHub that's been there for three years, I think, basically asking if if anyone wants to get Dart running on FreeBSD. Mm -hmm. And the, the issue has been updated over the years with um, basically like a full working port and the author of it wanting to know whether his work is going to get integrated. And then somebody picked it up to compile on OpenBSD. And then this, I guess somebody on... Uh, NetBSD was um, offering support to do that as well. Mm -hmm. And so none of this support was getting committed. And this story got posted to Lobsters um, with the title, Interested in BSD Ports, or Are We All Wasting Our Time Here? And I think you had something to say about this. Yeah, well, um, so it was kind of interesting because um, I was having a dialogue with the, the guy who had been doing that work, Adam Wolk. He was um, you know, he has done some of the games and he's done some really cool porting work and he was just asking them and really willing to have dialogue with them and say, listen, if I need to host a build, um, I can do that. If you are telling me, you know, this isn't going to work, then that's fine too. Um, but he was a little bit frustrated that this ticket had been open for three years and he didn't really have a good understanding of what should be happening. And, uh, and, you know, I, I don't know necessarily necessarily if he felt like let along or whatever, but I posted um, a rather um, uh, bold comment on the thread, and it was basically uh, challenging Google to either collaborate with the open source projects and collaborate with the open source community um, in a bi-directional fashion or quit playing games mm -hmm. and, and um and and really the reason for that is 
uh, if you look at our Firefox port, um, we have 16 patches, or maybe less than that, like 11 patches that we have to apply to our Firefox uh, port to make it run on OpenBSD. And um, on the other side of the deck is we have Chromium, which has something like 330 patches that we have to apply to get to build. And um, what happened, I don't know, several months ago is that the the Chromium team basically closed hundreds of bugs for FreeBSD and OpenBSD, and they said, we're not going to support this. This is not a supported platform, whatever. Mm-hmm. And And so to me, what that is, is that's a code dump. This is not an open source project. This is not an open source collaboration. That's Google dumping code on the internet and saying, here you go. Mm-hmm. And um, I guess the, the reason I got a little bit upset about that is because the OpenBSD project, not the project, but people who work on OpenBSD have found bugs in Chromium. Okay. And they're bugs that affect more than just OpenBSD. So these are, these are bugs that Google acknowledges and says, oh yes, we need to fix that. We need to do better. And, um, so they benefit from us doing this, but they only want things that benefit them. They aren't willing to, um, you know, put resources into supporting the BSDs and supporting these other things. And I kind of understand that when you have an open source project, you can't say, all right, I'm going to support the 17,000 distributions of Linux and the 200 BSDs and the 17 versions of Microsoft and however many versions of Mac. I, I get that and I respect that. My frustration was is that they didn't... Um, they weren't clear about that. They weren't, uh, they weren't saying, look, this is not a goal. This is not a whatever. Mm-hmm. They're, they're kind of beating around the bush. And, um, and, and more to the point, uh, Firefox has been really good about upstreaming fixes. And, um, I, I don't think that this is an isolated issue of, you know, a not, this isn't in our goals. This isn't something that we want to support. I think this is an issue of, you know, personal taste. Um, because some people at Google do a really good job, like the Go team, um, who happens to have an OpenBSD developer pretty close to them. You know, they support OpenBSD. They su- support relevant architectures, what they consider relevant architectures. They do builds and they do all this stuff and it seems to work. Mm-hmm. So I was just challenging them. Um, uh, and maybe even calling them out a little bit on the fact that it seems like uh, what's in it for me, or possibly even personal agendas that don't line up with Google goals as a whole. And uh, and what happened was, <laughs> somebody posted that onto Lobsters, um, and uh, one of the first things that happened was somebody criticized me for being, you know, aggressive and abusive, or needlessly aggressive, yeah, um, towards open source projects. And, you know, m- maybe it was. I don't... I mean, that's really for the Google team to decide if it was needless, needlessly aggressive or not, or if they took it that way. Um, but honestly, it produced really good resolve, um, both from the Dart folks and from uh, some of the people who work on OpenBSD ports. So uh, I took a little heat for it, but I think uh, maybe my issue is that there's a bigger problem in the open source ecosystem uh, that you know, wasn't being addressed in a, in a good fashion. And I don't like being aggressive and I don't like being, um, assertive, but let's face it. You can't always go around being a hundred percent diplomatic and getting results, uh, that are agreeable. You can't really affect change that way. Yeah. So, uh, I stuck my neck out and I took some heat from it and, uh, 
some things came pretty good from it. But I don't, I'm, what's your, what's your take on it? What did you think of that post that I put on there? Well, I mean, your call out specifically of Google is nothing new to me. Um, I used to have my own Android distribution back in 2011. And that was basically a, f like, it wasn't really a fork, but it was using Android, the AOSP, Android Open Source Project. Mm -hmm. It was basically all of the base code in Android that um, all of the manufacturers get that they load all their crap onto and then make their own version of Android. So uh, AOSP is, uh, so basically my version of Android was just AOSP with some very minor things. Um, so it didn't have all that crap on there. But anyway, so every time Google would release a new version of Android, they would push it out to their Nexus phones first. They would send the code to the um, to these manufacturers, and then they would just do a code dump in AOSP. So every time there was a new version, all of a sudden, all of the repos uh, that they had, because there was probably like 30 or something like that of all the various little projects that make up Android. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, like in one day, um, they would all just have these new commits from like, you know, months of work. Right. And so people that were actually looking at that code would have to go through there and be like, okay, well, what did you actually change? And all of the stuff that I had uh, based on top of that now like doesn't compile and I need to adapt to all these changes. And so in the process, Google has taken no feedback from anyone using that code. Um, and it's all kind of just uh, thrown over the wall. So yeah. that's basically how I um, assumed that Google works. And so when I was uh, reading the stuff about Dart, um, and seeing that Google is doing that with this project, it came as no surprise to me at all. Um, and the reason that I led into this with the um, Vax thing is because I can see the the drawbacks to a project taking on um, code to support operating systems that maybe the like core developers don't um, have any experience with. Mm -hmm. um, and something that comes to mind is like looking at um, OpenSSL and all of the weird code that's in there that supports like open VMS and platforms that have like, you know, not been used in, in a decade. Yep. And so that code just kind of, uh, sits there and stagnates. And then eventually, um, it becomes like this if def maze of, of things that compile on one platform and don't, um, get compiled on another platform. And it's really hard to read. Um, but the, the stuff with dart, I think was more segmented. There was like a separate BSD file, that would mm -hmm. just get committed on that on that platform, and mm -hmm. I think um, Go has like a similar structure. Yep. So I don't know. I mean, I can see, especially like if the um, if this code were to get committed, and then they don't set up like a build server for OpenBSD, or um, you know, they go through with a huge code change, and none of the stuff works on uh, any of the BSDs anymore there's always going to be these issues coming up after the fact of somebody saying like, Hey, this broke, here's a patch, get it working. That gets fixed in the next release, but then the next release comes out and they've changed some other stuff. Mm -hmm. So it's like, if they don't actually take it on as a supported platform, um, it, it really like languishes. Yep. It, and it definitely is a huge, um, undertaking for, so I, I agree with that. I, I think, um, and also, too, to be fair, um, Adam had volunteered to host the build servers. So, mm -hmm. I mean, he was even volunteering to uh, fix things that came up. Um, I, I think they, in the model that we're talking about here, like, both teams kind of lose because it's a lot of work for them to do a code dump and then 
people have to clean up the pieces and, and similar and similarly, you know, they can't say like, oh, our release was ready to go. And now we have to wait for you to fix these platforms that we really don't care about. Right. So I do respect that. And, and I understand uh, kind of where they're coming from. The thing that I uh, think about in the back of my head is if we look at what happened at Sun when they did Java, um, it, I mean, I've written tons of Java and I don't like writing Java anymore. But if you look at what happened with them open sourcing a tool chain like that, that did run on many platforms, that is what I, I think that's one of the bigger things that revolutionized open source software. Um, you could get the tools, you could build whatever you wanted, and you could do stuff with it. And um, and now I think we're kind of on the other end of the spectrum where we have these open source projects, and it's kind of their right to say, you know what, we want to focus on AMD 64, i386, and ARM, and we want to uh, only support uh, Linux and OS X and uh, Windows and call it quits. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I think it's kind of, uh, even though it's their right, I think it goes a little bit against the spirit of uh, open source because I remember for a long time people said, oh, well, Linux is a second-class citizen and people complained and complained and complained and now I see a similar pattern happening with the BSDs. They're a second-class citizen. But then once they gain more traction, then they're no longer a second-class citizen because more people can use it, so more people do use it, and mm -hmm. it kind of it kind of grows. the The whole thing is very organic, I guess. They grow and grow and grow. So yeah. it's it, it's a big thing to think about, really. Yeah, and I think you know, like you said, if someone's willing to put in the work and be the maintainer of that and do the build server and all that stuff. Um, that's a, a much different situation than just, you know, opening a, a bug on GitHub and saying this doesn't compile on my operating system, make it work. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it shouldn't have taken three years to, for the, uh, Google people to look at this and did they finally, uh, import the code or no? Well, they did, uh, open up the avenue for the things that we just talked about. Um, what does it take to build? What, are, what are their expectations for that? And, and really, um, what it boiled down to is, you know, they just weren't really interested in BSD. The, the developers, like, on a personal level, I'm not talking about Google as a whole. I'm talking about mm -hmm. the people who work on Dart were just like, I don't like BSD, so I'm not really going to do much with this. And uh, and then they kind of got the dialogue flowing a little bit about, well, we tried this, and then we made a mistake, and then so we'd like to prevent the same thing from happening again uh, with the BSDs, so... Um, yeah, I think some good things came of it. Will we ever be first class citizens to them? Probably not. Yeah. It seems weird for a, uh, programming language to not want to run on as many platforms as you can. Well, and that's what I was driving at with Java is, um, you know, when you have, when you have something like that, I think it needs to work in as many places as possible. If you want your language to be adopted and get traction, it can't be a Linux only tool or a Windows only tool in, you know, kind of the in IT environment that we have nowadays with just tons and tons of operating systems and tons and tons of architectures. Um, do I think it's important to make it work on eight different OpenBSD architectures? No. Do I think it's important to make it work on the primary uh, architectures? Yeah, I mean, I really do. If you want to be considered as, well, let's back up. So Dart is aiming to be uh, a programming language that's used for web application development. 
right? Mm-hmm. And so you look at what things on the internet are being served by, and Windows is out there, obviously, you have that stuff. Linux is out there, but there is a lot of stuff served on, on BSDs. And there's a lot of stuff on FreeBSD, there's a lot of stuff on OpenBSD, and there's quite a bit of stuff on NetBSD as well. And so if I was a Dart team member, I wouldn't be sitting there going, uh, well, this isn't in our target goals. And it's like, are you kidding me? Like, yeah. the BSDs have a huge presence for serving applications like that. So I think it is a little bit silly to make a programming language targeted at serving applications and uh, not be interested in the BSDs. Yeah. Yeah, so um, in other news, um, the Mercurial author, um, he posted something to the wiki, then he basically said um, he is going to be stepping down from the development team, um, and he kind of said it, it was occupying too much time, too much of his time, and, um, you know, he, I mean, Mercurial is still going to exist and still going to uh, be developed, but um, he won't be spending time on it which I think is kind of a bummer. I actually really like Mercurial. Um, when I started using Git, everybody assured me I needed a distributed source code tools, and I said, okay, and I couldn't stand the interface. Um, and then Mercurial came along, and it was a distributed source code system, and uh, I started to use it for a bunch of personal projects, and I really, really liked it. And, uh, you know, I seem to be using... Mercurial to get projects and Git to get projects, but I was really only enjoying working and developing and checking in code in Mercurial. So it's kind of a sad thing to hear that uh, he's not going to be working on that anymore. Yeah, it seemed like he was. He had a, a plan set forward, and he was within like six months. He wanted to, somebody else to make a release, and then within like a year, he wouldn't be uh, involved in it at all. Yeah. I wish him the best, though. I uh, really enjoyed using Mercurial on a daily basis for, I mean, really for the most of the past seven years. Well, good. Enough about that. Uh, we want to do uh, an interview with you. All right. Um, so I just want to open off uh, pretty lighthearted, but what can you tell us about you? Well, um, I am Joshua Stein. I am 33 uh, I live in Chicago with my wife and dog and cat. Um, I am a self-employed software developer. I have a uh, company called Superblock, which got its name from the uh, part of a file system. And in my uh, free time, I like to play arcades and waste time on the internet and do other programming stuff and drive my car really fast around racetracks. Ah, racing cars. Now, what kind of car do you have? I have a 2008 Lotus Exige S240. Now, is that the Lotus with the um, the uh, engine that was designed by Yamaha, the 2ZZ? Yeah, it is a Toyota. Um, I think it's designed by Yamaha, built by Toyota. Yep. And then uh, Lotus straps a supercharger to it. Yep. And that thing is uh, an awesome engine. I actually... Um, the Matrix I had had that in it, the Matrix XRS, the 2ZZ GE engine, and it's the same thing that they use in the Lotus cars. Very, very cool. So uh, now what kind of uh, racing do you like to do? Um, so I do road course stuff, so it's like um, usually when I say I go on racetracks, people are like, is that like NASCAR? Um, NASCAR goes left, 
and in an oval and I do road course stuff, which is left and right and braking and all that kind of stuff. Now that's like, um, sh- the, the short course stuff in parking lots with cones and you're timed. No, that's, um, autocross. So okay. this is like on the full length, um, uh, racetracks. Yeah. Very cool. Uh, not far from me, we have, uh, Nelson ledges and there's a raceway out there. Nice. Yeah, I basically go to any track that um, I can withstand sitting in a Lotus to, <laughs> you know, driving to. So that's like um, northern Michigan is basically the farthest that I'll go. Yeah. Well, at least it's a it's a comfortable enough car that you can drive to the track and get back again. I know uh, some some cars, we, um, we worked on a 24-hour car, and we had to make it a little bit more comfortable uh, because it just, it was beating up the driver too too much to last more than a few hours yeah was that the 24 hours of lemons uh lemons that's not, that sounds right uh yeah it was a 24-hour race over at uh, nelson ledges and um yeah that was basically the same type of thing yeah so i'm basically like limited now with the the modifications i can do on my car because to go like the step above what i have is like full slicks and um basically a car that i can't drive on the street anymore Mm -hmm. so i'd have to like buy a truck and a trailer and that whole thing yeah now do you do all your own wrenching on the car i do yeah um that car and all the ones i've had before it um have been pretty easy to work on i haven't really done a lot of like internals of the motor so i've never had to like pull a motor or anything but uh you know brakes tires suspension um stuff like that it's pretty easy that's very cool. Now, what kind of uh, what kind of maintenance goes into a race car? Because, you know, daily drivers, you put some oil in them, put some gas in them, check the air in the tires, and you're good to go. But a race car, I mean, that requires a bit more uh, observation and maintenance, doesn't it? Yeah. So my um, the car that I used to do track stuff with was a Volkswagen R32, and mm-hmm. I kept modifying it to the point where it was like super uncomfortable on the street, and it made all kinds of weird noises and all that stuff. And then I was basically like, why don't I just get a car that I don't have to do anything to, which was a Lotus. So I got a Lotus Exige. Um, this was the non-supercharged one, um, a while back. And then I ended up selling that and then moving. And then I bought the one that I have now. But, um, yeah, with that car, it's basically, I drive, you know, I look over the car, check the brake pad thickness, um, check the brake fluid, uh, tire pressure, like make sure the tires look okay, drive to the track, um, and that's pretty much it. I mean, there isn't like a whole lot to do with that car. Um, it does have like adjustable suspension. So depending on the track, um, I can adjust the dampening of the, um, suspension and stuff. A lot of fun. Very, very cool stuff. Well, um, enough about the car. Uh, you said that you have your own company, um, for Superblock. you said, mm-hmm. what can you tell us about, uh, Superblock? Um, so it started off as a, uh, partnership with a friend of mine in high school. We were going to make a web hosting company and then he kind of faded out and then I restructured the company to be, um, my own. And it was basically a freelance software development company. So I was doing just, you know, picking up random projects, um, while I was, while I was working at an internet provider, um, out of high school. And then once I left there and, and continued doing the company on my own, um, I was still doing 
uh, freelance software development, but then I made the mistake of making an app, um, which takes up all of my time now. <laughs> yeah. Um, so h- how is, um, now what, what app did you make? That's the, um, notifications, right? Yeah. It's an app called pushover. Um, mm-hmm. and it's basically notifications for Android and iOS and there's a web based, um, desktop version. And then there's like an API that goes with it. So basically if you want to send notifications to your phone from whatever you want, like a website or like you can do it from the command line from curl or, you know, integrate it into whatever, um, you don't have to write the mobile part of it. You can just write a piece of code that sends a message to my API, install the app on your phones and then, um, get those notifications on your phones. Very, very cool. So this, that was probably started long before Android provided, like, didn't they come up with an API, like a notification API after that? Um, the app uses all of the standard, um, system notification system, like uh, mechanisms. Mm -hmm. Um, but the way that they work on Android is that you basically just send a message to your app and then your app is running in the background. And then what it does with that message is up to you. Um, most of the time you post a notification based on that, Uh but you can like just tell the app to do a sync or something like that. And then on, um, on iOS, you send a notification directly to the operating system. So your app, um, at least that's how it used to work is your app wouldn't see it. Um, and then the operating system would just take the text that was in the notification and show it. But, um, in newer versions of iOS, you can, uh, it wakes up your app for like, I don't know, 10 or 15 seconds to let Mm. you do whatever you want with it. Um, and then it still shows the notification. Now I would kind of imagine that, uh, once you built an application like that, it would, uh, it would be a little bit less time consuming than always building custom applications for people. But you, you mentioned that this is occupying most of your time now. What's, uh, (laughs) how's that consuming time? Well, so the whole thing started because I used an app called um, Notifo or something like that, which was basically the same thing that my app does um, because I used it for my network monitoring system. I just wanted to get notifications on my phone and then send stuff to it with an API. Well, they were like the typical Web 2.0 startup, so they had no business model. The whole thing was free. And then not surprisingly, they went out of business because they had no money left. Um, I think they were a Y Combinator startup. So that left kind of an opening and I was like, well, I still need that. And why, you know, how about I make the app and then sell it and see if people will buy it. And then if it makes money, I can, um, use that to, you know, continue running the thing. And that was, um, many years ago, I think it was three years ago now. And so now it, it gets enough, um, generates enough income and, uh, support and all that stuff that, uh, it is basically what I do every day. Yeah. So I don't have to do, but you're right. Um, doing custom software development, I never really, um, enjoyed it. I didn't really like moving from project to project. And since, um, I've always been on my own, I still am with pushover. I do everything myself. Um, I didn't have like a salesman and I'm not a good salesman. <laughs> so I didn't like cold calling people or like trying to advertise on the internet. Cause I still view it all as spam. And, um, so it was like hard to get new work. Because I I would just get the project that that come to me, you know. Yeah. Well, I mean, it sounds like you've done all right, though. I mean, things are obviously you're making ends meet, and uh, 
still continuing to uh, move on with work on OpenBSD. Um, so let's let's talk about that a little bit. Let's talk about um, how you got started with OpenBSD because uh, this this happened long before you started your business, right? Yeah, this actually started in um, high school. So in uh, 1998, um, it would have been like OpenBSD 2.3 or 2.4. Um, I was running a BBS, um, out of my bedroom at my dad's house <laughs> while I was in high school and I needed, I wanted like a secure platform cause at the time I was using Slackware, uh, Linux for all the servers. I had yeah. like a whole rack of servers in my bedroom. It was kind <laughs> of uh, obnoxious, but, um, so yeah, I heard about OpenBSD. I'm not really sure where, um, it may have been on the loft BBS for anyone that used to, uh, telnet into that. Um, so I found OpenBSD. I put it on one of my servers and started running the BBS on there. And, um, I basically started contributing by using the ports and like having to submit updates and stuff like that. Um, so that was 1998. So that was like my, um, junior year of high school, I think. No, yeah. something like that. Um, so then in 1999, uh, in my senior year of high school, so this kind of goes off on a tangent, but uh, in high school, I was uh, enrolled in this vocational program where we took a bus to the local college and we learned computer programming, mm-hmm. except the computer programming was in QBasic and Visual Basic. <laughs> and so by this time I had been doing Visual Basic for like five years, like, you know, making software and selling it. So I obviously like knew everything that they were trying to teach us at that point, mm-hmm. but it was like free credits and, um, you know, I got to get out of school for a while. Um, so I got really bored of like doing the exercises that, and all the code that we would have to write. So I started writing my own software during class. And um, I don't know if you remember back in like the days of Windows 95, I guess. When you were on a network, you used to be able to send messages to another computer with like mm-hmm. um, Win pop-up. Mm-hmm. Well, if you have a network administrator, he can see all those messages. So we were using Win pop-up to talk to other people like within the LAN there. And then we all got in trouble because the sysadmin saw it. So I wrote my own, um, chat program in visual basic that used, um, the, like basically TCP sockets. And it would just, uh, open up a connection to the other computer that was running the um, program and we could chat back and forth. So, um, I was installing that on all the computers there. And then, um, somebody and I, like we, I don't know if you remember the program back orifice, uh-uh. from, I think it was from the loft, but it was like, you know, you can completely control a computer from a remote IP or whatever. So we put that on it too, to like eject the CD-ROM drive and like, just, you know, mess with people. So anyway, they found all this software that we had installed on there and um, a bunch of us got kicked out. So we were kicked out of this vocational program. Well, it was during my senior year. So I was now deficient in credits to graduate. So they had a work program that if I, I would get out of school early each day and then have to go work and that would make up the credits. So I did that. And because I had been uh, using a local internet provider and I was talking to the owner like back and forth through email, I remember he was using uh, bind for their DNS servers and I had a static IP with him and I wanted to have control over the, the PTR record Mm-hmm. for my IP. And so I was like, can you give me like an NS record that points to my IP so I can change it whenever I want? Cause this was like back when I was doing, uh, immature things on IRC and like wanting to have my own host name. 
<laughs> and he's like, I don't think you can do that. And I'm like, yeah, you can. So I was like telling this guy how to configure bind on their servers to do what I wanted it to do. So anyway, so now that I had to join the work program, I figured I could get a job there. So um, I went in and talked to him and he gave me a job doing tech support at this internet provider. Um, so that's how I started working there. And a lot of their servers ran OpenVMS. I don't know if you've ever had to to use OpenVMS. No. It's pretty awful. Um, so all the servers ran OpenVMS, and then they had like one Red Hat Linux server that um, was like a shell server for all their customers. So as I started working there, I started replacing a lot of the, the stuff with OpenBSD servers. And then as I needed like certain software on them, I would write ports and submit them. And um, that's kind of how I started contributing more to OpenBSD. Yeah, very cool. So you went from uh, like a full-time user to, um, you know, making it work to fit your needs. And then, um, so how long from that until you got your account? I was working at that company in two. 2000 or no in 1999 and then I graduated in 2000 and then I started running the rt.fm openbsd mirror in mm -hmm. 2000 so um the openbsd guys knew of me from running that and then I got my first um laptop that would run openbsd it was a sony vio pcg z505 je <laughs> it's like a purple thing um, and a few other OpenBSD developers had it. This was all before like the ThinkPad X40 ever came out. Yeah. So, um, Aaron Campbell and I started talking on IRC and he would, um, he had the same laptop. So he would send me like diffs to test that all led to me getting my account in, um, August of 2001. Oh, awesome. So then at that point I was like, uh, writing my own ports and committing them. And then I maintained the, um, ports plus web pages on the website Mm -hmm. which were basically like the plus.html that we have now, except for all the ports. So it would like list every update or new port that was imported every day. And it was kind of a pain in the ass to keep up with, but I did it for four years. Wow. So that was, I mean, that's a long time ago. I mean, that's <laughs> 15 years or so you've had your account now. Yeah, I was actually on... Um, SSH'd into cvs.openbsd.org the other day, and I was looking at the password file to look up a user, and I was seeing like where I was in the password file and how many mm -hmm. new users have come on after me, and like how many older users are no longer active in the project. It's kind of mm -hmm. weird. Yeah. So how is so you started off doing ports, and you got your account. You were testing things uh, for other developers. Mm -hmm. So. After 15 years, how does your role or how does your involvement with a project like OpenBSD change? Um, I don't know. I mean, I still don't feel like a senior developer. Um, like, I still don't feel like I have the authority to okay things or, like, demand that certain things change. But I guess in terms of, like, who the active developers are that have been around for a long time, I'm up there. Mm -hmm. But um, I guess my usage kind of... Like, I kind of come and go depending on how often I'm using OpenBSD. You know, back when I worked at this internet provider, I was using it every day and, and adminning a bunch of OpenBSD servers and stuff like that. And then um, once I kind of started getting into the um, pushover stuff with my own company, I had to use a Mac every day for development of stuff. Mm -hmm. So I stopped using OpenBSD on my laptop. It was just on my servers. Well, you know, nothing really happens on an OpenBSD server it's kind of boring. 
So yeah. I stopped, you know, keeping up to date with it and updating ports and creating new ports and all that kind of stuff. And then just recently when I got this um, Samsung laptop, I've kind of gotten back into things with uh, using OpenBSD every day and seeing what's broken and what could use improvement and what drivers need to be written and all that. Yeah. So for anyone who is wondering what it's like to be an, an OpenBSD developer, what is asked of you, um, you know, for releases and for big changes and all that kind of stuff? Uh, what, what has been asked of you personally? Um, not a whole lot. I mean, if you're, if you're a developer with an active account, you're expected to test snapshots, to run current, to be there when the final, um, snapshots are built before a release to make sure that they're okay. So like the final snapshots that are built that will become the release are basically the, when the trees are completely frozen and then we all run them on whatever hardware we have, and then we update like a file that says, um, you know, the date, the architecture, if you ran into any problems. And then, so it's basically, we do all the um, the testing before uh, Theo makes the, the final CD-ROM. And then, yeah. you know, if you make like a, a change, you obviously need to be around to deal with the fallout in case the change broke stuff. And I seem to have a habit of like introducing changes that break other things in a weird, subtle way that I don't anticipate. Mm -hmm. So sometimes they need to be backed out or, you know, there, and then there, there might be a lot of pressure to, you know, fix it quickly because you're interrupting other people's work or they can't get their, you know, machine booted or you just screwed up their laptop or whatever. So, we have the, the saying commit and run. Like you can't just throw something into the tree and then go on vacation or something like that. Yeah, for sure. Very cool. So um, you also run um, a site called Lobsters. Mm -hmm. um, so tell us a little bit about Lobsters and, and how you got started into uh, building that. Um, so Lobsters was a domain that I owned for no apparent reason. I just registered it one night. Um, and then I used to be a frequent contributor to the website Hacker News. Um, mm -hmm. and then I got banned one day for, uh, submitting a post complaining that the moderators keep changing the titles of posts, like long after they would, um, be on the front page and it was confusing. So my post got like, I don't know, a few hundred upvotes and it was the top story of the day and everyone was complaining like, yeah, I agree with this. This sucks. Like stop doing this guys. And then Paul Graham banned my account and then sent me an email and said that I should read the, the rules or whatever. <laughs> and so that's it. I was like, my account was banned and it was like a shadow ban or whatever, or a hell ban. I forget which one it was, but it was basically like the site artificially loads slower. So like every time you load the page, it takes like five seconds for the, to get the whole thing. And then if you try and submit a comment, it like just gives you an error saying you're submitting comments too fast or whatever. So I was like, this is bullshit. I was like in the top 50 or something, top 20, I don't know, of users on the site in terms of posts and comments and stuff. And I was like, that's dumb that he would just, you know, ban my account, not even consider like all the things that I had uh, contributed. So I made my own. So I, um, what's the expression from uh, Futurama? <laughs> <laughs> Build my own with hookers and whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I, I've been running like and developing uh, forums for a long time, message boards and stuff, mm -hmm. just experimenting with different ways of 
having discussions or whatever. So I had, there were a few ideas that I already had in my mind of what I wanted a uh, site like this to be that kind of combined Hacker News and Reddit and Slashdot and some other minor things that I had picked up uh, in my many years of being on the internet. So I wrote the site myself in uh, Ruby on Rails, and I launched it, and it's uh, still running. So I guess that's good. Yeah. Uh, not too long ago, you uh, turned the site into... Uh, uh, what? When was that? You turned the entire site into the BBS? Yeah, that was on uh, April Fool's. Yes, yes, So I yes, just like, yes. launched it on April Fool's, and then when you would load the site, you'd get a uh, terminal that was inside of the, the browser... And it basically was the old DOS font, the mm-hmm. like 437 code page. Uh, it was that font, and then all of the um, graphics were in like ASCII art or ANSI art, and you could log into it and chat with people, and it was like an entire PBS experience. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. Yeah, so I kept that up and running for quite a while, and then I actually just took it down like a month ago, and nobody noticed. So uh-huh. I guess nobody was ever connecting to it except spam bots and stuff. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. I remember that day, and I thought, oh, man, a lot of time went into that because that thing was really well thought out. Yeah, it was fun. Um, a lot of people seemed to enjoy it, and even after April Fool's when I put the site back to normal and just kept the BBS running um, at lobster slash BBS, I added like a page, the sysop function, mm-hmm. which like, you know, back in the day when you were sitting in front of the BBS uh, server, it would beep and like tell you, you need to chat with this user. Well, of course, you know, being 2015 at the time, I made it send me a pushover notification. So I would like <laughs> run back to my computer and log in and start chatting with people. And like so many people were, would just say how cool they thought it was and like how many memories they, it brought up of when they used to connect to BBSs and stuff. So that was pretty cool. Yeah, a lot of fun. Well, very cool. Um, I did have one other question, but uh, I just kind of, it doesn't feel like it fits in here, but you've talked about, you know, you starting your own business and kind of how you got involved with OpenBSD, but um, what what made you want to decide to start your own business and, and work for yourself um, rather than, you know, staying at the ISP or, you know, growing someone else's product or something like that? Yeah. So I've always been kind of a entrepreneur like even as a kid, I would always pretend that I had fake companies and stuff. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. I just thought it was neat. So I've always like had my own software company. Even I remember when I was like 13, I just made up a fake company name and I was making software in Visual Basic and I like published it somewhere on the web. I think it was like on AOL software forums or something. And I remember like one day someone sent me an email saying that they uh, published a shareware magazine and it came with like a cd-rom i don't know if you remember those that would be in like the grocery stores Mm -hmm. so they put my software in a cd-rom and i thought that that was so cool that um somebody out in the world was using my software so anyway so i've always had like my own company doing stuff and even when i worked at the isp i still had my own company just doing stuff on the side that was like not at all related to what we did at the um isp (laughs) and then uh after i had worked there for quite a while um they made me a partner and gave me um a stake in the company because I had been there for so long and um, I really felt like it was partly my company anyway. Like, you know, I would stay late and, and do stuff off hours just to make uh, sure that things ran smoothly and everything. And then I left there under um, strange terms, I guess. Um, yeah. 
by that time we had like a software development group. I was like heading up that group. I was the lead software engineer and the other partners had a meeting saying that we had to like cut some positions from the company. And I didn't go to the meeting cause I wasn't like, um, the manager of the group. I was just the lead software engineer at the time, but I was still like a partner. And then, uh, come to find out that they were getting rid of me and I was like, Oh, that's weird. <laughs> but I think it was, you know, it was definitely for the better because I had, you know, long been talking to the other owners saying like that I wanted to, you know, go out and, and do my own thing. But that kind of gave me the push that I needed to go out and do it. Cause yeah. at the time, um, you know, I was living on my own. I, I had a mortgage, I had car payments, you know, all this stuff. And, uh, it was scary to suddenly not have a job and then you still have to make your mortgage payment the next month. So that's when I started picking up on the, the, the freelance software development, picking up projects, stuff like that. Um, but I know that I knew that I didn't really want to get a job at another company. I wanted to see if I could do it on my own. Mm-hmm. And I apparently was able to long enough for pushover to come along. And then that steadily grew and kind of took over my time every day as far as what I would work on. And now it's to the point where it's uh, sustaining my wife and I financially. So yeah, I guess it was uh, a blessing in disguise, as they say. Yeah, for sure. Um, So anything on the horizon after the pushover app? I mean, are you going to sell this and make billions (laughs) and then uh, start something else? Uh, probably won't make billions. Um, you know, it's, it's to the, I'm kind of surprised enough people buy it, but so many other people will just refuse to pay $5 for an app that somebody spends, you know, lots and lots of time making. Yeah. And especially an app like mine where it should actually be a uh, service, like where you have to pay every year because I have servers that have to run all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and I continue updating it and you don't have to pay for upgrades or updates to the apps or anything like that. But anyway, to be honest, I don't really like <laughs> making apps. I don't use my phone that often. I don't have that many apps. I'm not like a total app developer that loves all these ecosystems. I hate publishing things under Apple's strict guidelines of app reviews and all this other stuff. Yeah. So I'm just kind of doing it cause, uh, it's been working out well and a lot of people like it. So I'm not just going to like throw them under the bus and, and drop the project or sell it to make, you know, a little bit of money. But as far as what's in the future, I'm not really sure. Yeah. Well, I wish you the best, uh, no matter what happens on that entrepreneurial, uh, spirit that you've got there. I'm, I'm excited, uh, to see what you do next because it sounds like, you know, judging from what you've done in the past, uh, you could have a lot of fun. Yeah, I just really have no idea whether uh, sales will eventually dwindle down to the point where I have to figure out what else to do or somebody comes along and wants to buy it, and uh, I don't have no idea. Yeah, very cool. Well, I uh, I learned a lot tonight. I appreciate you talking to all of the listeners and myself about you and your business and uh, how you kind of grew through your days as an OpenBSD developer. Um, is there anything else that you want to share with us before we uh, wrap this interview? I don't know. I guess just as, as far as the OpenBSD stuff, like if you are listening to this and thought about contributing to OpenBSD, but were scared off by Theo or somebody else or whatever. Um, or Brandon. Or getting, Brand, that B. Mercer guy. Getting um, overly aggressive at you. In the... 
<laughs> yeah, just, you know, uh, can, you know, throw your stuff out there. Like, you know, if you have a patch that for something that makes something better for you, or you have a port of some software that you use, or maybe you haven't written a port yet, but, uh, you should write a port, um, and just submit it and see what happens. Um, you never know, uh, what could happen. Yeah, for sure. And, and to build on that, I think uh, a lot of times the first time you do a port or the first time you have dialogue with people, um, you're kind of learning the ropes a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know, we have documentation for submitting ports and what we look for in a new port or an update to a port. And, you know, maybe the first time you don't get all the details quite right, or maybe there's some expectations that the ports guys have um, that aren't in the documentation. If they're giving you dialogue, if they're giving you feedback, um, that's a good thing because they haven't like, uh, it hasn't flown off their radar. It, they're seeing value in what you've done and they're trying to get you to cultivate, uh, your changes so that they're useful. And, and then after that, you know, if it was frustrating for you, don't give up there because the next one will be easier. You'll have a better idea of the expectations. Uh, you'll have a little bit more reputation with the, with the guys and, uh, it just gets easier with each one. And, um, you know, as you start to interface with the people more and more, you'll kind of learn their expectations. And um, the OpenBSD development model is pretty open. Uh, the tech lists and the ports list are, you know, they're they're a pretty accurate representation of what's going on inside the project. So, um, obviously, there's certain things that we don't talk about publicly until they're ready to be talked about publicly. Um, but you know, if you if you bring something along that just isn't right. Um, you know, that doesn't mean that it's not good or it's not whatever, uh, stick with it. It just might be bad timing, you know, um, release time or in a freeze or something like that. So stick with it and, uh, and keep working on it and, and try not to be emotional on the mailing lists. I mean, it's, um, it's, it's strange. Like I I went in the OpenBSD IRC channel Mm -hmm. and people treat me like crap (laughs) and I'm like, you don't have any idea who I am. And I just said, hi and hello. Like, yeah. why are you, why are you behaving like this? Like, you don't have to be like some gruff guy to fit in with OpenBSD. Like, I think people misunderstand, uh, direction and guidance and input and feedback with being gruff. And I, you, you know, people just aren't out here in the project being gruff all the time. You know, they're giving you feedback because they need to understand things. Um, or they're giving you feedback because you're off base with your idea mm-hmm. or, you know, I mean, sometimes people get it wrong. Let's just face it. But most of the time, if people are having dialogue with you, they're trying to help bring things together to where it makes sense and it lines up with the project's goals and it lines up with the project's expectations. Yeah. So. I think, um, you know, certainly the MISC mailing list is there's a lot of, um, flaming and stuff that goes on there, but yeah. You know, if you have a technical contribution and you're not like asking a question that's answered in the FAQ or something and you're posting it on tech, I think you'll find tech a lot uh, more welcoming to people that are actually contributing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, like you said, don't take it personally. If somebody doesn't like your code, it doesn't mean you're a, a bad person. It doesn't mean you're a bad programmer. Uh, it just means that somebody disagreed with you. Yeah. Um, and then even, you know, if somebody disagrees with you or someone's giving you some attitude, like it could even just be that one developer. Maybe that guy's having a bad day. Like it doesn't mean that they, you know, they don't speak for the project as a whole. So, um, you know, just if you have some contributions, 
throw them out there, see what happens, and be persistent. Sometimes, you know, developers, uh, you know, they don't have time to look at stuff or it's, you know, like you said, bad timing around a release or something like that. Yep. Just, you know, follow up in, in a, a week or two and say, hey, did anybody look at this? Do you have any feedback? You know? Yeah. And also, too, uh, to that point, um, there was a, a, the guy TJ who used to be one of the producers of BSD uh, now. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he finally got up the courage. He, um, Brian Callahan, he's one of the OpenBSD developers or is was a f- OpenBSD developer. He encouraged TJ to submit uh, diffs for the FAQs and PF and all that kind of stuff. And he finally did. And um, it's not been but a few weeks, but he's got an account now too. And he's contributing to the documentation and, um, you know, working on stuff. And he just never... He said, I'll never be able to get an account with OpenBSD. I'll never be able to contribute to the project. And here he is. Like, that's one of the most uh, important aspects of the project, I think, is that documentation and keeping up with the the guides and the website and that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, certainly uh, OpenBSD is regarded as having probably the best man pages of every of any operating system. Yeah. And also, um, I was going to say another thing that, um, oh, if you, if you want to get an idea of like uh, how the workflow happens for submitting changes. One of the best things to do is to follow tech and test every diff that comes out. Mm-hmm. Review it, listen to uh, what's supposed to happen, um, try the diff out, see what you can deduce from it. And I, and I know that I do this sometimes too. Like I think that things are going to behave a little bit differently than they really do. Um, so, you know, don't be... Presumptuous with your findings, <laughs> um, because sometimes it, it looks a little silly. But um, when you do that cycle, you'll kind of see how the process works. And then, so next time when you find something and want to submit a, a small mechanical change, um, you know, submitting that with the proper kind of uh, explanation, with the proper formatting of a diff and all that kind of stuff, uh, you'll have a better idea. Uh, that's I think the people who test stuff like that are are definitely valuable to the project. Mm -hmm. So that's another good way to see how things work and what's expected. Yeah, for sure. And, and pay attention to who okays what and what the feedback is, even to other developers, you'll see the same type of thing happening to developers. Yeah. All right. Well, that's all we have for this episode. So if there's anything you'd like to hear us talk about in a future episode, you can reach us on Twitter at garbage FM, subscribe to our show's RSS feed on our website at garbage.fm or find us on iTunes or your podcast app. Uh, Brandon, where can people find you? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at no mercy mod with a K N O W. And you're on uh, GitHub as No Mercy. Oh yeah, <laughs> everybody knows that now because I, you know, that's not the first time I've uh, ruffled the feathers of some Google people. <laughs> Let me tell you, I did a rant on Google Plus one time, and uh, I it was uh, maybe a few weeks later, or I don't know, and a couple people commented on the post that I did and I was like what and I was really (laughs) emotional on this one and I was talking about using Angular 2 and the experience of it and uh, anyway a couple Googlers replied back and kind of you know encouraged me hey you should uh, do a pull request and I'm like I'm not doing a pull request for that that's stupid (laughs) so yeah I've been found ruffling feathers yet again Uh, and I'm on the web at jcs.org and on Twitter at jcs oh and uh, and you can find pushover at pushover.net pushover.net plug plug yeah plug plug hey i just wanted to let you guys know um some people have asked uh it's our goal to release a new episode every friday 
Um, so hopefully you'll have something to listen to while you uh, go out for lunch or walk home from work or, uh, you know, do something lazy on Friday night. So anyway, that's our plan. So uh, check back every Friday and see what we've got to say.